One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is David. It's the podcast. You know, the drill. We're trying to make economics a little bit more comprehensible, a little bit more even entertaining, but hopefully a little bit more germane and relevant to everyone's life. It is early September 2020. We are only... Two months away from the American election, this time two months, we will know who is going to be in the White House. That is colouring the background noise this week. I'm, I'm joined by my old mate, my old mucker, the man who has to tolerate and suffer this carry-on every week. Mr. Davis, how are you, Ed? I'm good. I'm very good. I'm just learning lots. Every week I look forward to this, Mac. I'm telling you now, little did you know when you were up that tree hut in 1978 <laughs> that you would be soldered and wedded to this nonsense for years <laughs> as we cruise into grumpy middle age, the pair yeah, of us. Absolutely. But let's kick on. Let's kick on. You know what was okay. on my mind, John? I don't know if you've been watching. I don't know if you've been watching what's going on in the States. I presume you have. Oh, God, yeah. Sure. You know me, Mac. I'm a little bit obsessive with the Mango Mussolini. But yeah, he's been at it again, all right. The Mango Mussolini. Yeah, it's a good (laughs) one. Well, you know, the funniest thing of the Mango Mussolini is it might well be all playing into his hands at this stage. All the riots, all the shootings, even though... Almost all the shootings are being perpetrated by Trump-ish supporters against yeah. non-Trump supporters. It might all be playing into his hands. And, you know, it, it may well be playing out well for Trump at the minute, but I don't think it's by design. No, but I mean, the, the interesting thing is it's events, dear boy, events. As yeah. uh, Anthony Eden, the Anthony English Eden, Prime Minister, right. yeah. yeah, events, dear boy, events, that events actually t- dictate everything. And if you could have given Trump and Pence the opportunity to reframe the American election away from COVID, away from the economy, and onto law and order, and what side are you on, and the culture war, you know, this summer has given them maybe a lifeline that you, and you can see it in the polls as well, John, since the conventions, both conventions, Trump's ratings are starting to move up again. So it's kind of crystallizing on the street, on the American street. Do you actually think it's more to do with the conventions and, and not more to do with all the events going on elsewhere, like in Portland and what's the place, Kenosha? Well, and actually, having said that, I think that the Democrats are playing this all wrong. They should be out condemning all the rioting because it is just playing into Trump's hands. And actually, I don't think Trump intended on running on a ticket of law and order. Yeah, and but, like, yeah but I mean, it, it suits him. It suits him to reframe. Yeah. The idea, black and white, rich versus poor, 
hatred of American versus socialist, you know, the, all this sort of combination. I can just see where this is more food and drink. He's much more comfortable in this type of scrap than Joe Biden is because Joe Biden has got to do is he's got to be A, on the side of black America, who are very yeah. angry, but B, also on the side of law and order because his middle-of-the-road constituency, the average Democrat, wants to uphold law and order and the police and, and, and the cops and the state, etc. So it's, I'm saying it's a more tricky one for Biden to navigate than Trump, because Trump is quite happy to abandon one side of the argument yeah. and just go hell for leather the other side of the argument. Yeah, and actually I have to say that my impression of Biden at the moment is that he's really beginning to look his age now. And I think that's a big concern. Well, And then, of course, the other blow this week was the publishing of the new unemployment figures, which were unexpectedly good for Trump. Well, what has happened, right, what has happened is in the last couple of days, there's been a significant sell-off in the Nasdaq, okay, in the tech market. Right. So tech stocks have fallen off. And the question is, why has that happened? And why it's happened is that the American economy in August generated 1.3 million new jobs bringing the rate of unemployment down to around 8%. Yeah. Now, imagine when COVID started, the rate of unemployment spiked up as high as 20%. So what you've seen is a progressive going back to work of the Americans. Now, what that does, John, is that suggests that the interest rates that are needed to get out of this COVID-inspired recession, depression, might not be so low. So we might not necessarily need zero interest rates for long. Now, the reason this impacts on tech stocks, John, is that so many of the tech stocks are a promise of riches tomorrow based on a huge amount of borrowing today. So what a lot yeah. of these tech stocks have done is they've borrowed hugely. Like you take an Uber type, type, type stock, mm. okay? Hasn't made profit, has burned through cash. But if your cash is priced at zero, you can burn through lots of it. If, on the other hand, interest rates begin to rise, then the penalty for burning through that cash and not generating profit rises. So a lot of those tech stocks have been looked at again only in the last 48 hours, John, only in the last 48, 36 hours, to right. say, actually, that's the first thing. The second thing is that what the financial markets like is a clear win, whether it's centre-right or centre-left. And they were seeing that towards the end of August as Biden in the polls was pulling away from Trump. And there was a perception that Trump couldn't catch up, or at least that he couldn't pull the same trick twice. Yeah. But now that you've got this Kenosha and Portland and all these rioting on the streets, you can see an avenue via which Trump can win on the basis of this law and order idea. Now, what is interesting, therefore, is that if the race gets really tight, and I expect it to get really tight, we're talking hundreds of thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of voters will determine who goes into the White House rather than the millions who actually vote. It'll yeah. be the swing states and the swing voters, right? Interestingly, what is happening in America now, if you talk to people in financial markets, what they are worried about isn't who wins, but the legitimacy of that win. It's what I would call the sort of... It's like, it's like dealing with an emerging market now, right? It's like dealing with, yeah. you know, it's, it's like the, the Brazilification of the United States, that what is worrying people now is not the election, but whether or not whoever wins the election wins it fair and square, or whether Trump will contest it, and whether he'll say it's illegal, and whether in fact he'll actually go peacefully, or whether he'll get his guys back out on the street, uh, sort yeah. of militia guys. 
Or, and on the other hand, if Biden loses fractionally, let's say it does what happened uh, between Bush and Al Gore in, do you remember the hanging chads in Florida Florida, in 2000, right? If that happens again, which it could happen again, what you'll find is that the Black Lives Matter movement, all that sort of liberal progressive movement in the States will take to the streets again, challenging the legitimacy of Trump. So what you have is the United States, because the culture war is so deeply, deeply rooted now there, and because people have taken such sides, it's going to be difficult for them. Like normally what happens in the United States, rightly or wrongly, or has happened in the years, whoever loses, loses fair and square. They call up the winner. They say, thank you very much. Well done. You have my congratulations. It was a fair fight. And they head off into the wilderness, right? Yeah. But if that doesn't happen, you're in a situation where maybe the American election is contested, not for a week, not for two weeks, for, for months after. Yeah, but and that, I, mean, I think, is what freaks people out. Yeah, well, geez, it freaks me out. Can you imagine four more years of Trump, what that would do to the global economy, to geopolitics in general? It would be crazy stuff. But you know what? Trump has been laying the groundwork to cast doubt on the election. He's been pushing that message out now for a while, feeding into the doomsday preppers and the like. But you know what? There is a real concern about how messy this could get after the election. There was an American historian called Henry Adams, who was part of, you know, the Sam Adams beer family? The Adams, who were the original, they were actually the original Plymouth Brethren types. They arrived on on Plymouth Rock. Very, very big Boston Wasp family. One of those, Henry Adams, was a very famous American historian who wrote a history of the early years of the American Republic. This is about 100 years ago. But he said something very interesting. He said, politics is the systematic organisation of hatreds, okay? Mm. It's a fascinatingly chilling and simple idea that you basically, you organise hatreds to position yourself against your opponent. And what COVID has done is it has, by increasing the rate of unemployment, increasing the rate of business failures, increasing the rate of indebtedness, increasing the rate of people who are now dependent on state handouts, it has, again provided a very, very rich area for hatreds. And you superimpose upon that the black-white race wars that are really playing out on the streets in America. And they're not playing out in the streets in New York or L.A. It's in Kenosha, Wisconsin, like the Midwest, places where Trump has to win, but also where Biden also has to win. These are places that are up for grabs. So when I see what's going on the last week, I mean, I've been quite shocked at the deterioration of the cultural war and the way in which it's reframing the entire electoral cycle. So Biden would have loved to have gone in on rate of unemployment at 10%, COVID out of control. I want to say love to have gone in. These were the issues. He would yeah. have pointed the finger at Trump and say, you are an incompetent man. Now what Trump is pointing the finger at Biden and he's saying, do you trust this guy with security? And I agree with you, rather than Biden actually making the point, which is clear, is that Trump is the biggest risk to American security because he's inflaming the street. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Democrats need to be a little more nicey-nicey. And by being a little bit nicey-nicey and making sure that they're not seen as extremists because Trump is calling them socialists and, you know, communist agitators and all that sort of stuff, I think the only thing that Biden can do is run on decency. I am a decent man. 
you know me for 50 years in public life or 46 years. I'm a decent guy. Trump is not a decent guy. He has to go on these sort of soft issues. Yeah, well, as they say, it takes one to know one. So does it take a decent guy to recognize a decent guy? Well, And perhaps with American politics being so polarized now that like a, a Trump supporter is a Trump supporter full stop, that as you say, it may come down to the few swing states and small numbers of people. But do you know, it really feels like to me that America is becoming more and more like a third world country when it comes to elections and politics. It is. And it has done. It has done. If you think, right, the single most important attribute of a developed country is the integrity of its institutions. Yeah. Its legal institutions, its police force, its tax system, its education system, its health system, you know, basic functions of government. And if you cannot rely on those, and if those are being gradually chipped away at by the president, it then becomes an issue of, are the institutions strong enough? And then you look at the financial markets, John. Financial markets always assumed that the institutions were strong enough. But if the financial markets are now looking at a situation where the election is being contested by a sitting president before the election, he's already contesting the legitimacy. What you have, as you rightly point out, is a situation where not only does the election not clear the air, but it muddies the waters even further. And yeah. that, I think, is what economists, investors, etc., looking at the United States, and they're thinking, you know, this does look like, as you said, a third world country or a second world country, yeah. maybe a second world country. And uh, it's not what people expected America to be in the third decade of the 21st century. 
will be towards the end of the year the the dreaded B word Brexit. Yeah. And that is going to play out like a pantomime, like a theatre, with the Brits saying the Europeans aren't doing enough, the Europeans saying the Brits aren't doing enough. What I find more important is how that plays out in Scotland and the Scottish independence referendum and what will actually do, because I don't believe that Brexit is so much about Britain leaving Europe. I believe it's about England leaving the UK. And I think that's where the whole thing is going to play out. And I think we'll probably come back to that maybe next week yeah. about uh, Brexit because it's going to come back into people's perceptions. Although this week there was a very interesting speech given by Jens Wiedmann. Now, he is the head of the Bundesbank. Used to be the most powerful financial organisation in Europe. Yeah. Has been superseded by the ECB, but he is still a very powerful player in the German political firmament. And he was railing against too much borrowing, governments not being taken to task, the European community being allowed to borrow. Now, it's interesting because sources tell me that Wiedmann himself was actually quite instrumental at the beginning of the pandemic at opening up the floodgates to borrowing. He's maybe, people were saying, quite instrumental in nudging Merkel towards Macron, allowing the European community to borrow because now the European community can borrow through the European Commission. And he just seems to be changing his spots now. And the question then is why? Why is he framing the battle in Europe? He's saying the battle coming up in Europe is going to be between the North and the South. Right. The frugal four and the profligate Latins. And more or less, more or less. So basically it's a battle between Italy and Germany. When you cut out it all, these are the two big players in this particular strife. Just before now, I go on, Mark, can I just wind you back a, a little bit? Why was Wiedmann pushing Merkel towards France, towards Macron? This is because traditionally he would have been very much a Bundesbank hard-nosed player. Maybe not quite the hard-nosed player that Hans Tietmeyer or Karl Otto Pohl, his predecessors were. But he would have been very much, look, Germany first. But I think there's been a change at the top in Germany where they realise now that they no longer have the whip hand in Europe, i.e. they can no longer dictate things in Europe. And this is what I want to talk to you about is the changing nature of European power politics deep inside the European institutions, which the Italians, believe it or not, even though they are caricatured as messy and not being on top of their game and etc. The Italians are actually playing a masterclass. I want to come back to this. So I think the Germans at the beginning of the pandemic were saying, okay, we need to save Europe. We need to back the European Commission. Now, as they're beginning to think, okay, what's Europe going to look like in two or three years' time? The Germans are worried now that they have been dragged too far in to the Macron corner. And again, Macron is France, and France is closer to the Italian and Spanish corner than it is to the German one in this new dispensation. Sure. In the old days, when Mitterrand and uh, Helmut Kohl were at the helm, the German-Franco axis was everything. That's slightly less the case now. So there's all sorts of things going on. Yeah. But the interesting thing is it will, it'll come down to a battle between Germany and Italy and to see which side France 
sides with. That's the way it's going to go. And it's quite seldom appreciated that Italy is the second largest manufacturing power in Europe after Germany. Much bigger than France in manufacturing, much bigger than the UK in manufacturing, okay? The north of Italy, probably the wealthiest region in the European Union, with the exception of central London. Right. Preeminent in design, consumer goods, and cars, and fashion, lots of heavy machinery production. And that's not to mention Italy's prowess in agriculture, agritourism, food, tourism itself. So Italy is, although it's always been portrayed as a country out of step with the rest of Europe, Italy is a significant industrial powerhouse. And it's also the linchpin of the EU, because like after all, the European Union started with the Treaty of Rome. It wasn't the Treaty of Berlin, it was the Treaty of Paris, 1957, Treaty of Rome. Yeah. Italy has always been a major, major player. So if... Italy has always been such an industrial power. Why is it perceived to be such a basket case? This is what I'm saying, is that the the perception is largely driven by the Anglo-Saxon and the German media that Italy is a mess because in the last two decades, the Italian economy has definitely faltered, right? Some argue it's because of the euro. Some argue it's reflective of the fact the Italian population is aging rapidly. Others will say the Italian plight is a function of government and corruption and the mafia and all that stuff down in the Mezzogiorno in in the south of Italy. It's probably, John, a mixture of all three. Right. But what we keep forgetting is Italy is still a significant, significant economy. It's a significantly wealthy place. It is an innovative place. It is also home to nearly 60 million people. And ultimately, Italy and Europe's fortunes are intertwined. I believe Italy has been subject to all sorts of kind of shorthand, lazy caricature. Like, for example, you know this idea that Italy is unstable. You'll hear, for example, the Brits saying things like, oh, the Italians have had 60 governments since the Second World War. Yeah, 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 yeah. But having 60 governments since the Second World War is actually a sign of complexity. It's a sign that, you know, the country that's about to break up now with a referendum in Scotland is Britain, not Italy. Yeah, So in actual fact, by... By being flexible and ambiguous and working in the grey. It's, you know, that idea in, in Northern Ireland, I think Seamus Mallon explained that the Belfast Agreement was an exercise in constructive ambiguity. I think it's a beautiful expression. I think Italy and Italian politics is an exercise in constructive ambiguity. But the big fear for Europe is that Salvini, the head of the Northern League, wins in Italy, okay? Mm. And he wins because of the perception that the European Union isn't supportive enough to Italy. He goes in an anti-European standard or under an anti-European flag, and suddenly then Italy is no longer the linchpin that Europeans wanted. So there's a lot going on. Okay, so there's a lot going on. There's a lot of change. There's a lot of wrangling. And we're still under the cosh of COVID. But have... All of these issues and cracks been there all the time and and it's a case of COVID is speeding everything up and therefore Germany are reacting now. Yeah, no, I mean, the thing about COVID is obviously it, it hit Italy worst, quickest, hardest. Yeah. But the first. Italians have reacted almost in terms of where the Italians are now. The Italians are far ahead of everybody else. So they've actually reacted very, very quickly. They are still on the green list of the vast majority of countries. They have kept their rates of infection down in contrast to Spain, who 
we've seen rates of infection going through the roof in the last week. Yeah. I think what COVID has done, I think you're right, John, is COVID has simply exposed what was already fragile. Right, yeah. Okay? Be it unemployment, be it the problem of the labour market, be it a problem of debt, etc. What it's done is because, you know, COVID has forced governments to close down large sectors of the economy. And once you do that, it exposes all sorts of problems. It's, uh, Warren Buffett once said about investing is, you only know who's swimming in the nude when the tide goes out. <laughs> yeah. Right? So you only know who's fragile when all the uh, institutions of state are called upon to do their thing. Although in Italy... As you have to say, I'm a bit of a fan of skinny dipping. There's nothing fragile about it. There's nothing fragile about skinny dipping, John. There's nothing fragile. You're, you're a shocking sight with your clothes on, my friend. <laughs> but your, 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 your question is good. So why are the Germans reacting now? Now, I think what has happened in Germany up until now, Germany has been the one country in Europe that has managed to stay with China in the sense that Germany has managed as an industrial power to do very well in parallel with the increase and the expansion of China. Now, maybe the Germans are quite worried that they are overextended and overcommitted and overdependent on their prestige car market. Right. Okay, because German car market, and that's a market that's going to change profoundly as a result of COVID, as a result of the environment, as a result of, again, don't think that just because the Chinese haven't figured out how to make a car to compete with the Germans in Europe, that they won't figure it out. They yeah. will. And also Germany has an aging population a bit like Italy too. Like, for example, an amazing statistic is the German population would have peaked in 1972 had it not been for immigration. That, wow. that is phenomenal. Wow, yes. So the, the, if you want to use that word, the ethnic German population peaked in 1972. So maybe it's the case that Germany is getting angsty because when Germany gets up and looks in the mirror, it sees Italy looking back at it or something that looks like Italy. Yeah, you don't hear much about the German tech industry, like the software industry. Like it seems to be more relying on the more traditional car manufacturing hardware stuff which are kind of old industries. Well, you're right. And I mean, the Americans would always say, where's the European Google? Where's the yeah. European Facebook? Yeah. Where's the European Stripe? Where's, you know, where are the European versions of these big American tech companies? Where's the European Apple? It isn't there. Yeah. And that's a, that, and so they're, they're not, Europeans are not competing at the same level as the Americans are in technology, right? So maybe the Germans are worried about you know, them turning into Italy. Although it sounds weird, that could be the case. But I think what's actually annoying the Germans is something more immediate. Yeah. And this is, the, this is the strange thing, is that deep within the European Union, right, is that despite Germany being the paymaster general, it's the one who pays all the bills, it's the paymaster, yeah. it's been outfoxed, outplayed and outmaneuvered by Italianate diplomacy at almost every turn since the 2008 crisis. And this is where it gets really interesting, right? That the Germans gave up the Deutschmark and adopted the euro under the promise that Europe would basically turn into a little Germany, right? right. That all Europeans, once we got the euro, that we would change our behaviour and the, you know, the Irish and the Italians and the Spaniards would actually turn into little Germans. And, and that, that didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened. You can argue that we became more delinquent and the Spaniards became more flamboyant and the Italians became more profligate 
are all using German money in the first 10 years of the euro. Yeah. So what happened for the Germans is they have been shocked by the fact that in the beginning 10 years of the euro, we didn't display more Germanic traits. The same, now, John, I'm using sort of, you've got to use sort of slightly caricatures and slight sure. uh, yeah. national stereotypes. The reason is that culture matters in economics. In the same way as culture matters in cuisine, culture matters in economics. We are like, for Italians, we are beer and butter people. And they yeah. are wine and olive oil people, right? Yeah. And, and these are very, very deep cultural fault lines. And if you think that culture is simply the norms by which in a society organizes itself, whether it's music culture or cuisine culture, or intellectual culture or economic culture, there is a difference. But more interestingly, the Germans set up the ECB to be the Bundesbank, to be the most German institution, hard money, no lending, keep interest rates high, the currency will be as hard as possible, etc. Yeah. Over the last 10 years, the Italians have orchestrated a coup d'etat in the ECB under Mario Draghi, the Italian Jesuit-educated former head, right? <laughs> now his successor is a French woman, Christine Lagarde. Yeah. And for hardcore Germans, the French are almost as bad as the Italians. They're a suspect on hard money. Now, so the ECB was designed to be the old Bundesbank, but it's actually ended up in the last few years being much more like the old Bank of Italy. For right. example, the ECB has been buying government debt, it's facilitating large state overdrafts, it's basically saying to every bank, deliver all the stuff in your balance sheet, all the messy stuff you have, and we will swap that for real money for you. It's instructed banks not to pay dividends. It's kind of, as they say in the market, it's buying up everything that hasn't been nailed down, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's saying to everybody, do what you want. So basically, under the Italian orchestration, the ECB has turned into the Bank of Italy. And from the German perspective, these are like these whispering Italians operating behind the scenes with the kind of French and Spanish co-conspirators, right? And they've turned what was supposed to be the high church of Max Weberian Protestant ethics, the ECB, they've turned it into the Vatican, right? With all right. the intrigue. Did you, have you seen the two popes, John? Have you? Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, I have. Yeah, right. yeah. Now, now, imagine that trade-offs and intrigue and mendacity behind the scenes. That's what's going on in the European Central Bank. And the Germans are not happy about it because the Italians have changed the rule of the game and they've done it slowly, definitively, deliberately, behind the scenes. And while everybody was underestimating them and saying, oh, Italy's such a mess and Italy's such a bastard case, you know, that, what you were saying earlier on, why is the perception? What the Italians themselves were doing was actually taking over the European institutions and turning the European institutions into a much more Italian-looking version yeah. than a German-looking version. And that is freaking out the Germans. So how much of this is down to Merkel, a miscalculation on Merkel's part? Or is that unfair to say? No, 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 she's part of the whole thing. And I'm sure she's thinking, as always, waiting to see where the dust lands, waiting to see what the end game is. And she's been an amazingly brilliant player. But what the Italians have done, John, is that they've made a fool of the German obsession with austerity. Because by allowing the ECB a lend money, John, at 0%, what it's actually done, it's the same to governments, you 
can have as much money as you like. Now, austerity yeah. is all about taking away money from governments, but lending to governments at zero, they make a mockery of austerity because austerity cannot happen when the central bank is buying everything sure, from yeah, all yeah. the governments yeah. because it's basically, it's taking away with one hand and giving with the other. Yeah. So yeah. what the Italians have done They've actually run rings around the Germans in terms of monetary policy. This is why it's one nil to the Jesuits, right? <laughs> the Jesuits, yes. right? Never underestimate the Jesuits, right? Yes. The Jesuits, Draghi is a Jesuit educated person, okay? Yeah. That the Jesuits, and I remember my, my father in law up in Belfast when I'd be arguing with them about Ireland and United Ireland and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and eventually Billy would say, stop sounding like a fucking Jesuit, right? <laughs> That the worst thing you could be to a straight-up northern prod was a Jesuit, okay? <laughs> Say, speak clearly, not like a Jesuit in circles, speaking in tongues, pay me. <laughs> speaking in tongues, tell me. And uh, what, what the Italians have done is they've actually turned the ECB into the Vatican, right? Yeah. With a Jesuit at the top. And this, of course, has implications for Ireland. Because you know the expression, our friends in the north? yes. This is now all about our friends in the South, because the Italians, together with the Spaniards, and to a degree the French, have forced interest rates down to zero. This means that every country in the Euro can refinance their entire debt structure at zero. Yes. It means you can borrow what you want. It means you can retire debt. It means you can figure out what you want to do and not have to worry about the costs. So This is huge for us. So is this a, like a moment of truth for Germany? Like, is Germany being isolated in Europe then? No, because the Italians are too clever, right? It's a bit, again, like the North. You remember James Mann, another great expression about the Belfast Agreement. I don't know why I'm going back to that this today, but it's sticking in my mind. Yeah. He said the Belfast Agreement was a great example, right, of the prods are too stupid to understand they've won and the Catholics are too clever to tell them. Right. Think about it. It's a great expression, isn't it? Right? And in this place, the Germans are too haughty to understand that the games have changed, and the Italians are too clever to inform them. So the Italians right, right, have right. managed, despite the fragility of Italy, they've managed to orchestrate a massive change at the European Union level. Now, maybe, maybe this is because everyone understands that Italy is fragile, that the Italian diplomacy has to work and they have to give themselves a chance to work over the next 10 years. But by turning the ECB into something that smells and feels like an Italian organisation, an Italian institution, they've given themselves a chance. And I come back to that idea that economics is always comes down, John, to what they call rules versus discretion. Yeah. Either you base it on rules, hard and fast, that you can't change, which was the old-fashioned German way, or you base it on discretion, so you actually change with the challenges that are there in front of you. My feeling is discretion, wisdom, should win out over rules and simply hard and fast laws, right? Yeah. But for Ireland, it means the Italians have done us a huge favour. They've way? given us an open. They've given us an open goal because they've dropped interest rates to zero, which means that we can refinance our entire debt book as a country, both the private and public sector. 
It means if we want to build fast rail, we can do it. If we want to build a new green agenda, we can do it. If we want to build houses, we can finance them at zero, we can do it. And it seems to me that nobody in Merrion Street has understood the profundity of what is going on. So, John, in football parlance, because you know we're coming back into the season, John, and I will be coming obsessive again, right? Looking forward to it. The Italians have offered us an open goal. And when faced with an open goal, what do you do? You take your chances. So, Mark, a bit of good news. The CPD stuff that we've been working on and promising for the past while is now available. Give us a quick rundown of what it's all about. Yeah, no, it's great, John. It's what we've taken is the course and the tutorials, and we've made them CPD applicable in the sense that if you want to get CPD points and a huge range of our listeners and people who might not have listened to us are CPD compliant. They need CPD. It's a continual professional development. And now they can learn economics with us and get their CPD points. So I think it's a really interesting development because lots and lots of people were talking to us on Patreon or me on Twitter saying, can I get points for this? Can I get a... You know, I'm yep. really interested in studying economics, but it'd be really nice for me to also get a little piece of parchment, a little certificate, some points, etc. And now we are live. So if you want to learn economics with me, to learn macroeconomics in a way in which it's never been learned or taught before, have a gander at Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Join me. We'll learn economics together and you will get your CPD points. 